Hey, everyone. Our guest and co-host this week is comedian, journalist, political commentator, and television host, Jordan Klepper. You know Jordan from his work as a correspondent on The Daily Show, The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, and his Comedy Central docuseries, Klepper. Jordan and I talk about a wide range of topics like the meaning of Make America Great Again, the normalization of extreme language and opinions, why we find conspiracy theories so compelling, his experience at the Capitol building on January 6th, how he met his wife while on a comedy tour, and a lot more. Our first caller today is Kate, who, after a 10-year-long friendship, has recently come to see the guy in a new light. Now she wonders if confessing her feelings to him is worth putting their friendship at risk. Next, we talk with Olivia, who, after agreeing to a friends with benefits relationship, realizes she's falling for the guy and doesn't know what to do about it. Thank you for listening to Unqualified. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. Just look for the link at unqualified.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Jordan, I am thrilled to be talking with you today. I want to start out by asking you what Make America Great Again means. Well, I think for some people, they could argue it's in the Bible. I believe it's in Genesis somewhere, definitely on the first page. <laughs> I think if you take a step back, for me, it was clever branding that was borrowed from the Reagan era. But deep down, what it did is it branded an idea that things were better. Let's just revert to when things felt safer and better for us. A strong rallying cry and one that <laughs> I've gotten to see up close over the last handful of years. But I do think it's pretty open as far as, you know, what the desire of a lot of people who get behind this idea of MAGAism is. And I do think it's a false identity based on a hope that the past was easier than the future. But I think that often happens in any kind of political movement as we fall back on the idealized vision of the past as opposed to confronting the potentially scary future. Well, that imaginary nostalgia can be very dangerous because it does feel unspecific. I mean, have you ever been able to get an answer out of somebody when you ask, what does that mean? Great again. When was it so great for you? Like, give me some examples. Lay it on me. <laughs> you know, one of the first videos I did talking to people about this movement was asking them, when was America great? And it does. It immediately stumps folks. I got answers about the 60s. And then once you bring up some of the political movements in the 60s, it was like, well, yeah, it might have been better for you if you were white. Definitely not if you were living in the South somewhere. And if you were gay or had a point of view that was outside the norm, probably not a better time. And they would agree. And then people would go back to maybe the 20s, which also, I'm not talking to anybody who's lived in the 20s at that <laughs> point. Just people who have nostalgia for... Flapper dresses. Flapper dresses. The swing movement. I think strictly big, bad voodoo daddy fans. And they all talked about the 20s was a great time. And it was like, yeah, but even the bourbon you're imagining in the 20s was not as good as the bourbon you're having now. Yeah, it got capped off with a doozy. <laughs> yeah, it didn't end super well for most folks. And if you really want to dig into it, the way that we got out of the 20s is we put a revolutionary Democrat in office who sort of was like, let's pull these things together so that we can move forward as a nation. So there is no answer no matter who you ask when it comes to the MAGA movement, follow-up questions are the downfall because people haven't thought through their initial gut reaction. Their feeling is that it was better, but their thought process doesn't go beyond that feeling. 
it worries me that it is this subconscious current of racism, essentially. It's in there. I would hesitate to put it across the entire movement. I think if you have racist leanings or you are a racist, there's a decent chance that is a movement that appeals to you. It speaks to a time that is more comfortable for you. It also speaks to victimhood. And I think a lot of that racism falls on this idea that you are persecuted and not getting the things that you deserve. Other people are taking those things from you. And it is a party and a movement of grievance. And in many cases, that's what racism is. And so that is definitely underneath it. But I think even if you take that away, and there are plenty of people who I think who feel frustrated. Again, when it was initially came out, I do think it's important to think about like the genesis of this. Hillary Clinton was running on a third Barack Obama term. And in American politics, it's hard to go three terms with the same party because most Americans are dissatisfied with the status quo and dissatisfied with the government. And I think the initial theory behind it was, are you dissatisfied? Does the government not do enough? Vote for this outsider. And I think that's actually a pretty palatable message that a lot of people gravitate towards. It wasn't brought in all sincerity, but it was definitely reaching out to people who are like, you know what? I do think things could be better. I do think it's time for a change. Let me vote for change. And so I don't think that was necessarily uh, born out of racism, but I think Donald Trump knew how to stoke those racist beliefs and the grievance and the fear, and he's continuing to ride it and bringing it, to the forefront. But again, it's built around this nostalgia for the original intent with America. I sad to say, we're looking at what's happening with the Supreme Court. There's a lot of conversation about like what these people thought when this country was built and created. And I think there are a lot of holes. There are a lot of holes because at that point, this country was mostly for white men with a decent amount of money. And so I think you have the Gadsden flag, which was basically the rallying cry for those folks at that time. Have you noticed a shift in the years you've been covering the Trump rallies, even if in size or in mentality? Well, there's been a bunch of shifts. I think right off the bat, there was a normalization to the language. When I started going to Trump rallies. And when was that, Jordan? That would have been 2014, 2015, maybe. The theory that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim was considered a racist theory. And you'd be hard pressed to go to a public event with a television camera and have somebody admit that on camera. As soon as Donald Trump started saying that publicly, I would go to rallies and seven out of 10 people would say that to a camera. And so I don't know if he implanted that idea in a lot of people's minds or just exposed and changed where the bar was. It was like, well, now this is an idea that I'm not ashamed of, but I will say it to somebody with a camera and be proud of. You saw the language shift. You saw uh, the openness of those ideas begin to shift. They got more and more intense. And it wasn't until, I will say, <laughs> they grew, they became celebratory, became tailgate parties. And then when Donald Trump, quote unquote, lost the election, they started to become angry. And the first one I went to after the last election where he, quote unquote, lost, was the first time that they were not hopeful or even bragging about having a victory under their belt. They were angry. And so I believe that when I had four security guards and we had to run down an alley at one point because people were literally ganging up and trying to chase me. And that was the last rally I went to right before January 6th where things did turn violent. And it was this evolution from like, this is a party, this is a celebration. I feel like I arrived because it gives me a sense of community and I get to say rah-rah. 
Then they win. I get to say rah, rah, and it's a victor's parade. I'll go for four years to these victor's parades. Then they lose, and now it's a grievance parade, and the commander-in-chief is telling them they need to take action. And I think that's when things started to get really dangerous, and even to the point of going to school board meetings and people charging at you. People have been deputized since this last election in a way that has made these events no longer just rallies, but more so, <laughs> I don't want to say militaristic, but people are coming to it with a different mentality. Being on the campaign trail from 2015 through his victory, did you feel like you had a better sense of his popularity, of the passion that he was clearly invoking in people? The passion was very clear. People showed up. It was a fun event to go to. It was the biggest event that hit any of the towns that we rolled up in. And so I wasn't surprised by the passion behind Donald Trump. I think I didn't have a sense of the context. I think the media kept telling me that like these things that you're seeing are passionate events, but they're not reflective of a larger movement. So I was shocked that day as well, but I saw where it came from. And so if you told me like, can you believe all these people support it? It's like, yes. When I go to these towns, I see people who, again, they're not voting for Donald Trump. They're voting for somebody who they see as versions of themselves. And Donald Trump entwined his narrative to the narrative of the people voting for him. A vote for me is a vote against them. It means we win. And I think, you know, good politicians have done that for quite some time. God, so <laughs> Jordan, being in the know, did you feel like you had a better sense of the future than other people? I mean, did I buy a house up in Montreal in 2015? Maybe. Was that just a fluke? Perhaps. <laughs> I mean, I was still shocked because I was consistently being told that this can't happen. The polling shows this, the polling shows that. So I would show up and there would be five to 10,000 people at these events who were all in it for Trump. And then I'd turn on the news and it would tell me this is just a small fraction. And I believed that. Now, I no longer believe that anymore. And I think that's what's so scary about these movements because you see it only growing and getting more and more intense. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you were there at the Capitol on January 6th. Will you tell me about sort of the emotional state, the, your journey? That day, like I'd said, a few weeks before we had been to a rally in D.C., it turned aggressive in a way. So that was in early December? Early December, it was the quote-unquote Million MAGA March, which had about, I don't know, 30 to 40,000 people there who were angry and frustrated. And so we came down, the way in which we interact with folks, we just walking up to people, asking them questions, draws a crowd. And so we have to be a little bit more strategic are a lot of the people you encounter familiar with you? It varies. I would say at a general Trump rally, no. I think when you bring a camera, you're the bad guy anyway. So, you know, if they think I'm from CNN, they're going to throw stuff at me. They hear I'm from Viacom or Comedy Central. They're more curious. And sometimes you get people who turn away. It's like, I don't want to talk to the media. Sometimes you get people who do recognize me and are like, no, I definitely want to engage with you. Because people want to, they want to fight. They want to argue. They want to win which kind of goes into the QAnon idea, the inclusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They want to be part of the narrative and the story. I will say fast forward to a few months ago, I went to CPAC, which is a closed environment. It's packed only with conservatives. And I took 
maybe 50 selfies with people. And I was shocked, but I was part of the story. And people cared less about the fact that they saw me as perhaps hostile towards their point of view. They were more interested in the fact that I was part of the narrative anyway, that they wanted to be close to that. And so that's the evolution of politics into just sport and entertainment, where it's like, oh, I want to engage with you about topics that I think are really important and have real consequence. And you're more interested in a selfie because you think all of this is just a fucking game. So that has become scary. And you see that at those rallies, too. Can you tell me more about your January 6th experience? Yeah. I mean, we arrive with, I think, four security guards and a game plan, kind of knowing that day that there's going to be a speech in front of the White House and there's going to be the vote at the Capitol at one. So we kind of had a route plan knowing where the crowd was going to be. So it was not a shock to us. And are you anxious because of the last rally? Like, how are you feeling inside? It's a weird time. The night before, you arrive at a hotel and people in the lobby are wearing three percenter outfits. They're dressed in paramilitary gear. It's middle of the pandemic. So I'm and my crew are the only ones wearing masks, which immediately makes you the bad guy. Right. That's your badge. <laughs> so it's like, I'll just hop up an elevator and I'm like, oh, shit. Everybody's falling to elevators. I'm like, I guess I'll walk up the 12 floors to go here. So there's there's a tension there. And when we walk out, you know, the city is full of people. Half the people are dressed like they're there for a 4th of July picnic and the other half are dressed like they're there for paramilitary exercises. And it was nerve wracking. We had to tactically put our cameras away and not talk to people as we walked to the Capitol because people were aggressive. With like you and your team internally, are you guys like this is going to definitely be more intense? Yes. I think functionally, we know it has the potential for that. And so strategically, what had happened at the Million Maga March was that when we brought up a camera and people were milling about, talking to one person suddenly became 40 people watching us talk to one person. And that got dangerous. So we strategically were like, we can't do interviews in the middle of any of these scrums. We'll go to where things are and then we'll find space away from the main crowd. And then the people who are coming between places talk to them, which hilariously, the African-American Museum in D.C. was the one wide open space that nobody was coming congregating around. So we found space there to start doing interviews. And the chants are scary, to be quite honest. It's not uncommon to see people wearing t-shirts with guns blazoned on them. They're talking about, if you don't hear us now, we come back with guns tomorrow was a common phrase we heard as we're talking to. I talked to a man with a pitchfork. It was aggro. We found ourselves at the Washington Monument when the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys kind of made their first move down towards the Capitol. And so you had the sense there's danger here. People are angry and they're talking about taking up arms. At that point, though, I thought if we knew this, a dumb comedy show, so does everybody else. They must be prepared for this. And so we, again, knowing the game plan of that day, found ourselves right there at the Capitol when the fences got broken down because that's where everybody was going to head. It wasn't any big secret. And as that started to happen, security started even pulling me aside and our producer aside. and was like, hey, this is becoming an unsafe situation here. We've heard stories of explosive devices and trash cans. We don't know how safe we can keep anybody, which at that point, too, I'm still like, but yeah, they're going to get up towards the Capitol and stop because that's where the National Guard will come in. That's when it must stop. And it didn't. And so after we interviewed a handful of people literally on their way up the steps, including a man on a Segway, like probably a 70 year old man on a Segway <laughs> charging up. That day was so sad, terrifying and absurd at the same time. You had people hearing that there's people with AR-15s in the trees and there's silly men on segways chasing up to the Capitol. It was mind blowing. It was sad. It broke my heart and made me laugh all at the same time. And what do you make of the ongoing hearings, the congressional hearings? 
Well, I hope people are listening. I just did a piece talking to folks in the MAGA world, and I don't think they are, but I think the testimony is pretty darn compelling. As somebody who was there on the 6th and has kept up on a lot of it, I think what has been eye-opening is the plotting and how much Trump actually knew. I think I was still living a little bit under the idea that he was enough in a bubble, <laughs> that he was complicit in egging these people on for months about this stolen election. And I think hearing testimony that advisor after advisor gave him this information that he neglected, that he neglected, that he neglected, hearing recently that he knew there were guns amongst the crowd and still wanted people to come in. I think that's really terrifying. And I'm almost equally as terrified that it doesn't shock the entire nation. I know. There's still complicit Republicans in positions of higher power who aren't standing up and joining forces with sanity here and saying, this can't stand. These are people taking arms <laughs> against the government, against the Capitol. And we have the person who had the most power to do something about it, abstain. And it's embarrassing for this country. And it's embarrassing that you have so many people who are still mum as all this information comes out. Tell me what you think about sort of the growth of the conspiracy theory married into this movement. I mean, I think first and foremost, conspiracy theories are fun. Yes. It's a discovery. It passes the time. We can make a party game. Everybody can create a conspiracy. <gasps> and that is the truth. A conspiracy is just taking Congress things, put them together and say, I don't know, prove me wrong. And so I do think inherently people are compelled by a good old conspiracy theory. And I think you bring this MAGA movement in. And I do think what Trump has done is he's given people an identity that's connected to him. Where I empathize is that people want community and they want meaning in their lives. And Donald Trump comes in and is like, show up at my rallies. You're part of my team. That feels good. I'm a football fan. Michigan Wolverines are my team, and it feels the same when I go to a Michigan game. And then the commander-in-chief says, you also have meaning in your lives. You are a patriot. You are a hero. That also feels good. And then you have reality coming at you, full speed. And what Donald Trump has given folks is the ability to have used what they call decoy flares. And I watched the Top Gun movie, the recent Top Gun 2, when an F-14 Tomcat is being chased and they know a missile is locked on them and they can't evade the missile, they shoot out decoy flares a bunch of random shit that hopefully stops the missile. And I think that's what a good conspiracy does, is instead of having to confront a logical idea, you throw out disparate ideas as a way to distract and not have to have any accountability for the reality of that idea. And so when I go to these rallies, when I talk to these folks, there are really compelling ideas that they can't back. Right. I show them a video of Ivanka Trump saying, no, I agree with Bill Barr, the election wasn't stolen. And I see people in real time confront that. And they're not just confronting, oh, maybe I'm wrong. They're like, this is who I am. I've built a life around this idea. I am a MAGA person. It's my identity. I don't want to <laughs> reflect on the idea that my identity might be false. So I have to grab for something. And I think that's where Donald Trump is just a constant barrage of BS. And I think all you need to do is pull one little string and bat down that piece of information. They're being paid by somebody. It's George Soros. Maybe it's the aliens. Have you heard about JFK Jr.? I think China did it. All of these are little things that don't necessarily add up, but at least get you out of the uncomfortability of that moment. And I empathize. I understand. But it is really dangerous. And we have an ecosystem with social media and with the internet where if you want to find information that confirms your worldview, you can find it. And sadly, I think more people are interested in that confirmation than they are perhaps a reality that challenges it. I wanted to ask you what phrases you heard all the time. And I bet I read a lot <laughs> is one of them. 
Yeah, I read a lot. I got a lot of sources. I do my own research. That is definitely stuff that's always out there. <laughs> the research bases have shifted. What used to be Fox and Hannity has become Newsmax and OAN or just Facebook in general. So you see an evolution of where people grab it. But everybody has their own little expertise pattern. Can you give us hope, Jordan? <laughs> <laughs> Anna, that's not my job. Dear God. What's hard is I do see America doubling down on these things they already believe. And I don't think Donald Trump is as popular as he was. I do think Ron DeSantis is catching up and I hear his name pop up more and more. I think for those who have progressive ideals, I think Ron DeSantis perhaps is even more dangerous than a Donald Trump. I think this has been a tough week. I think you look at what's happening with the Supreme Court. You're looking at people turning back the rights of Americans in a way that is really disheartening. And I think it's the game plan for the folks like Mitch McConnell, who sat quiet and let this guy desecrate all the things that he claimed to believe. And now he's getting sort of what he wanted. So that bums me out. But in the world of hope, I think what I do see out there, I do see other people getting energized by what is happening. And that is no small thing. I've gotten a chance to watch the gun control, gun safety movement. I went to another million person march and it was for gun rights. And that was a handful of years ago. And it didn't move the needle as much as I wanted it to. But this past week, the fact that they actually passed some legislation gives me a little bit of hope. There's a chance that there's some movement there, but I'm scared. I think we have a bad cocktail in America right now. Bad info, bad places to get your info and bad leadership to help guide you towards it. And that's a bad combination for walking towards the light. But we get to vote people out and your vote is worth less and less every year. So take advantage of it while you can. The Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade felt so unbelievably cynical. Like, I believe that perhaps Justice Barrett accomplished a life mission for herself, but the others have probably a deep understanding that this affects people without resource. Mm -hmm. And it just feels very cynical. It feels like a spiteful move. I mean, the things I've heard internally about Clarence Thomas mm -hmm. and some of his anger aims at the liberal movement, and this is a way to chip away at that. It also feels, I don't want to say irreversible, but it feels very difficult to combat and get back some of these rights because it is a system that, again, you look at this and, you know, people know all the stats. And I think it is really frustrating when you look at like the justices who are put in not by popular vote winners and who have lifelong appointments and aren't reflective of not only the populace, but they're not even reflective of constitutionalist ideas. And I feel like you can't even have an earnest argument with folks about where these ideas are coming from because they are coming from the political whims of the moment. And it's hard not to be cynical because I see that definitely at the higher places. There's a lot of things to be frustrated by this week. My wife, one of the things she just said was like, it's just so much time. We're going to spend so much uh, yes. time. There's so many things we need to work on. So many big problems in this country. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. And it's like the time we're going to spend attempting to get equality back. If we were tearing down gay marriage next and the time we're going to have to rebuild with that. This country has too many things we need to work on to take steps backwards and have to regain that. Like, it's heartbreaking. How did you meet your wife? I met my wife through the world of comedy. Comedy used to exist. Before 2016, <laughs> there was this thing called comedy where people found laughter in sarcasm, heightened comedic mm -hmm. sensibilities, mm -hmm. wigs. Things like this existed before 2016. It was great. But my wife and I toured for the Second City in Chicago on a comedy troupe doing sketches and improvisation. And out of traveling the country in the back of a van, we found a little bit of love. 
Wait, wait, wait. Okay. I like the succinct answer here. But were you guys hooking up? Were you guys like friends with benefits? Was there like flirtation? <laughs> okay, I see what this is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time, we were dating other people. Were they on the tour? At the time, one of them was on the tour. My wife's boyfriend was not on the tour at the time. But your girlfriend was on the tour. My girlfriend was on the tour for some of it. This is a good story. <laughs> all right, so you guys are all in a van. We're in a van. How many people are there? It's a cast of six and then a stage manager and a musician. Okay, are you guys limited to like one bag a piece? Oh, yes. You have one bag that throws in the back. We're sharing rooms. We're playing, you know, performing art centers. Colleges would be fun. Occasionally going to like college parties afterwards or going to <laughs> shitty bars right around town. <laughs> I love the idea of you guys, like, going to a frat party. At 24, 25, you're at a frat party, like, this is fun and cool. And you're like, wait a minute, at some point, this is not cool. And I think, actually, I was already in that point, but my realization came a few years later because I wasn't going to frat parties when I was in college, only when I was a very cool improvisational comedian outside of college. <laughs> so you're sharing rooms. We're sharing rooms. Me and the other male colleagues share rooms. So we were cut off by gender there. So the love had to happen outside. This sounds like a blast, by the way. Honestly, it was some of the most fun two years. Like you're getting laughs in weird parts of America. Yeah. You're making $90 a show. You're drinking cheap beer in shitty hotels in weird parts of the world. You're falling in love. You're breaking up relationships. <laughs> and then I think we actually found our connection mostly through the act of quitting. My wife quit and was like, I'm done with this. And then I also quit soon thereafter. Did you break up with your girlfriend on the tour? So I broke up with one of my girlfriends to date another woman who was on the tour and then broke up with the woman I was dating on the tour to date the woman who I married, Laura, as I was quitting the touring group at the time. Okay, so I'm completely drawn to funny people. <laughs> yeah. But it must have been really fun to get to be attracted to these people through a creative process as well, right? Oh, 100%. I think like in this world, all of my best friends have kind of been born out of the sweat and the laughs and the lack of laughter on a stage. And so, like, my wife and I started, before we were married, writing together. We started doing shows together. We did web series together. We moved to New York together and started writing and working together. And we still, literally, 30 minutes before this interview, I was working on a project and we're collaborating and working on things together. I mean, you're vulnerable when you create. You're also at your best when you are trying to be funny and to impress. And so I think that was something that drew us to one another. That says a lot about your character. I mean, your work says a lot about your character. But I love it that you let someone else also spark your own creativity. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I do think... Here we go. Let's reach for grand metaphors here. But I do think like if a marriage or any kind of commitment is sort of finding that other person that makes you better, that fills out parts of you or perhaps shines a light on parts of you that need more of a light shined on. I think you can find a lot of that through the arts and not to get over artsy fartsy. But I think like the improv world at its best is a world that's all about listening, building, creating. I think those tend to be good tools for a good relationship that you are looking to take care of that person. And again, I'm probably overselling how good a performer I was. I was a selfish performer at times. I went for jokes. Let's be very clear. 
there. There's people on the touring company who are like, what is he saying? He's a good lover and a good improviser. That motherfucker went on stage, sold me out for a cheap joke in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he's acting like he's some king to women over here with his gift of comedy. <laughs> but at my best, at my best, to perhaps at improv's best, I was generous, I was loving, and I was looking at the person on stage trying to make them better and funnier. <laughs> at least it happened once. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi. Hi. You're here with Jordan, who is just awesome. Hey, Kate. Hey. Thank you so much for your letter. Will you tell us what's going on? Absolutely. So I have a friend who I met about 10 years ago. Him and I, super close. Like, we just have a very intimate relationship, easy to be around. And I've kind of always been aware that like, I hold how our relationship is as kind of a standard for like, when I date people, I want it to be like this level of fun and this level of like openness. And I thought that that was kind of okay to like have that bar. But I've recently become aware that I feel like that kind of sometimes holds me back in my relationships that I'm doing this comparison. And then I saw my friend, we've been in contact all this time, but we've lived apart for like seven years at this point. And I saw him about a month ago and we just like picked up right where we left off. And then I've kind of since then been thinking like, maybe this is more than just this idea of him. Maybe it actually has to do with him and potentially having feelings for him. And I just am kind of uncertain about where I should go with any of this, if I should talk to him about it. Kate, what's a good name for him? Let's see. Let's call him Drew. Okay, Drew. So you've been friends with Drew for quite a long time. Yes. But it sounds to me like, you know how most big ideas start as like a little germ in the back of your head. You don't even realize fully that it's there. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of fertilizes and starts to grow. And then suddenly you're like, I'm going to move to Italy. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Drew is Tuscany. Drew is your Tuscany. I love Drew. Drew makes the best wine. Oh, my God. The villas that Drew has. Yes. 
I get the sense that you have only recently said it out loud. Yes. But that you've probably been really drawn and attracted to him for a long time. I think that that's probably accurate, that there was always kind of yeah. a back burner, but it was like, we wanted different things and he was with someone else. So it was just like not approachable in any way. How often do you think about him during the day? Recently, I feel like I think about him every day. Five months ago, I feel like I would think about him maybe twice a week. Okay. All right. So it has ramped up. Yeah. And when you think about him, of course, it like makes you happy. Yes, it does. And has he given you any indication of feeling the same way? He's only ever seen me in like a friend role or potentially even like a sibling type role. (sighs) This was like the first 30 years of my life. (laughs) (laughs) the guy I crushed on like he would say at one point like oh my god is there like any way you could hook me up with Kate who was my gorgeous neighbor yeah and my heart would just like (sighs) yes god anyway Kate that's who I am so I'm with you here okay yes Kate have you guys broached this conversation even in a joking manner (laughs) So sort of. So it comes up from other people, mostly. Like who? Some of our like mutual friends. So yeah, people have brought it up to us and we've brushed it off in like group settings. The closest I feel like we've actually come to legitimately discussing it is when I saw him about a month ago. We were like at his house and we were hanging out and we watched Infinity War and Endgame and... (laughs) We were talking about the Hawkeye-Black Widow relationship and if they had ever hooked up and, you know, are kind of our theories there. And it kind of snowballed into this discussion of like close platonic friendships. And then we kind of addressed us in that conversation, but it wasn't very direct. And you guys haven't been physical? No. In your letter, there's like all these cute sort of approaching flirtation moments. Mm -hmm. And do you mind my asking how old Drew is? He's a year older than me. He's 32. I just think that most likely if it was going to happen, a move would have been made. It's been a long time. Yeah. If I told you that you should call Drew tonight and tell him how you feel, Mm -hmm. how does that feel to you? Kind of terrifying. Yeah. I'm just worried because I think you know, too, in your gut. Mm -hmm. I mean, he clearly adores you. He clearly loves your company. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do think at that age, I suspect a move would have been made. And does it then put your friendship at jeopardy? And how do you feel about that? Yeah. And that's definitely a concern I have as well, just because we have spent so much time together over the years. Like we've been very like close situations. We lived like down the street from each other and a bunch of different things. The only hesitation that I have with that is that he was seriously dating someone until like the end of 2020. And so it is fresher him not being with her. They had dated for about like seven years at that point. So there is some question there, but I do think that you're probably right. I feel like if his feelings matched mine, something probably would have happened before. I guess also at this point, like how to move on. I'm worried that this friendship crush will be there. Her comparison, the mental space that Drew occupies. And is Drew dating? Yes. Does he tell you about the dates? Sometimes. Does he show you pictures? No. When he tells you about the dates, what does he say? We'll kind of just like talk about how it went. And I usually ask some questions like about the person. 
that kind of thing. He doesn't really give me, honestly, that much detail about it. But if I ask, he'll always answer the question. Jordan, am I reading this wrong? Does Drew like Kate and she should just bite the bullet and say like, hey, I like you, man. Now, I will say all of my relationships started in friendship. That's just the only on-ramp I've ever known. And so I get that. And I think you watch those two Endgame movies. That's like Mm -hmm. 17 hours of movie watching together, which, Mm -hmm. first of all, kudos. My wife and I haven't watched that much television together in one sitting. So (laughs) that obviously shows the depth of your friendship. Mm -hmm. But also it does bring up the question, like, would something have happened with that kind of time spent? Mm -hmm. And also looking at the fact that he's been in a long term relationship. I get that. So there's new rules that are applying here. And I tend to agree with you on that because you're going to hit a point, too, where if he is your bar, (laughs) if you're thinking about him every day, at some point you for your own sanity might need to articulate this in a way Mm -hmm. to him. But I think you're right. I think that's a very vulnerable place to be. The one good thing about having known him for 10 years is hopefully you've matured at that level where something that is more like, hey, I want to say this. This might even sound silly or what have you. I have crushed on you for a little while. I Mm -hmm. love this time. I don't want to make it weird, but I want to say it out loud because it's going to be weirder if I don't say it. So I'm putting that there. Yeah. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love how you put that, Jordan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know, because at some point these questions become heavier on the mind that they almost have to be punctured. Mm -hmm. And there's the liberation to it as well. Yeah. You don't want to hide your actual feelings, but I think it's a lot to lay on somebody no matter how they feel. That's a big thing Mm -hmm. to give them the ability to be both like, hey, this is a wild thing that I'm throwing out in this conversation. I totally understand. But I crush on you. I like you as a friend. I don't want to make either of those things weird. I'm putting it out there. I think like there's a way of approaching that that gives him the freedom to also accept that and deal with what is probably going to be a big conversation for you guys. Yeah, for sure. Kate, tell me, how is he this magician? I I don't know. Like, he's great. And that's the thing. Like, he has a lot of flaws. You know, if I was just creating someone to be with. What are his flaws? Well, he can be kind of selfish uh-huh. inadvertently. What does that mean? For example, so I'm here in town for a friend's wedding. We're all going out tonight. I texted him last night. Hey, we're going to go out tomorrow. You should come, whatever. And he was like, mm, well, I'm like seeing this girl who I just met. So probably I'll do that instead. And like, I understand here he made plans, but maybe you should have thought about like all of your friends are here this weekend. And you guys have a large circle of friends. Yeah, pretty large. And we're all pretty spread out now. Is he like really popular in this social group? Yes, I would say that like when the social group was formed, he definitely was at the center of it. Now that we've gotten older, he's not as good at keeping in touch. So I feel like that's migrated a little bit. But he definitely, I feel like, would be expected to be at these things and a part of these things. Is he Joey, Ross or Chandler? I want to know, who is he? Maybe Chandler. Chandler. Yeah. He doesn't settle down on that Chandler. I mean, he does, but it's with Courtney Cox. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, Kate, my worry is this. I think it's significant that he texted you that he was going on a date and he'd rather be with her. Mm -hmm. That text was to you specifically, right? Yes. Yeah, I think that maybe he doesn't want a relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he is enjoying being single. I don't think you will get the relationship of your dreams out of this relationship. Mm -hmm. I really don't. I mean, he's selfish, charming, popular. Tuscany's great in the spring, but in the winter, Tuscany's a real pain. I gotta tell you. (laughs) So, (laughs) Kate, 
I think that there's a part of you that finds comfort in romanticizing a crush on someone that there isn't much possibility of an actual relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's okay, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think it's important to reflect on that idea a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that you just socialize. Yeah. I want you to nurture some friendships that you haven't. Mm -hmm. Force yourself to go out one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Start reaching out in your life, Mm -hmm. within your community. And it'll also distract you. I just think Drew is a dead end. We couldn't get in touch with his agent. (laughs) He didn't like the script. Didn't want to come on the show. Yeah. (laughs) Does that feel awful that I say this? No, no, I don't think so at all. And I think it's also very nice to hear from like neutral parties who don't know us, right? And I also think like the idea of talking to him and going into it, not making it quite so serious or being like, oh, this is the way it is. And these are all of my feelings, but just kind of more casually going into that conversation and then seeing where it leads is a good thought too, because I do think eventually I'm going to have to like confront those things. I don't think I can just ignore it forever. I think it's also, if you could take a step back, if that's the way you go, give him space. And I do think the fact Mm -hmm. that he... He's texting you right now about going on dates with other folks. Yeah. That's where his head's at. Yeah. Be aware of where his head's at right now. Yeah. It's easy to create this magical person in a distance. But I think like mm-hmm. if there's elements about Drew that can kind of tell you about the other person that you're looking for outside of it, mm-hmm. use them for scraps. <laughs> yes. Take these feelings and be like, all right, yeah. if Drew's going to do the Drew thing, Drew's going <laughs> to Chandler bing this shit up. All right. <laughs> What do I like about Drew? What is the good stuff about it? Okay, because guess what? There's other Drews out there. Yeah. Friends has been remade a thousand times with different names. So <laughs> figure out what elements of Chandler you like. They live out there in better receptacles that you will find. I have faith. Okay. Very encouraging. Thank you. Kate, I want you to find the love of your life. And I know that you will. Thank you. I'm thinking about you. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Kate. Bye, Kate. Jordan, thank you. You were great. That's great. That's good, sound advice. Have you ever had like the best and worst advice? (laughs) Well, I mean, I could go through it with the improv. I could connect them both because I will say advice in the world of philosophy, love and improv, I think don't shy too far away for me. And so want me to give you a little bit of my improv philosophy slash improv philosophy and how that works. If you don't know improv, the number one rule is yes and. And what that basically means is you say yes to something and then you add to it. That's what the and is. So agree on a moment and support it. And if you're in a relationship, seeing that person and looking to build off of things as opposed to putting up roadblocks, I think has been always the best part of relationships. Best part of creative building is accepting and building. Not constantly looking for something else, but seeing what you have and trying to craft that into something more. And improvisers are supposed to take care of their partner more than anybody else. And you do that through listening. And I think also philosophically, what I love about improv is you don't reject anything, you find something that is there, you have to look closer. And I think so many things in life could be 
benefited from just heightening your awareness and looking closely. If you walk on stage without an idea and you look at your partner, and even if they do nothing, but you look close, you look at the furrowed brow, you look at the way their posture stands, and you start to make inferences about the little small things that you see. One, you can craft interesting stories out of nothing, but two, it changes your mindset in a way that allows you to look for small beauties, it allows you to be present, and allows you to build. And so for me, it's been a good way to find comedy in my writing, in my improv. It's a good way to pay attention to the people that I love in my life. And also philosophically, I think alertness is a word that I have written on my wall, like staying open to the small and trying to find the beauty in that has always served me well. I love that. Okay, who has been the most influential person in your life? You know, my wife is the most influential person in my life as somebody who I've fallen in love with. I'm raising a child with right now. And so somebody who I look to for inspiration. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Olivia. Hello. Olivia, you're here with Jordan, who is just fantastic. Good morning. Good morning, Olivia. So, Olivia, will you tell us what's going on? Yes. <laughs> so, basically, there's a guy we used to work together, and it was at Christmas. I think me and one of our friends found out that he'd been led on for about two years. Can we name him? Um, Maybe Tom. Tom. All right. When you say led on, like, what does that mean? So he had a crush on this girl for about two years and she knew, but she never said anything. But they weren't dating? No. They were like best friends constantly together. And apparently the things that they do together weren't very friendy, but it never went past anything physical. It just was emotionally togetherness, I guess. So they would like go to the movies or whatever? Yeah, I wasn't really good friends with this guy until after Christmas. And then New Year's Eve came and we all got pretty drunk. And then I think I told one of my friends that I had a crush on Tom. And then my friends throughout till February were like, you got to tell him, you got to tell him. And I was just like, no, he's just getting over this heartbreak because it really kind of destroyed him. 
And then about February, he came over after work. It was like 11.30 at night and we were just laying, watching Aliens, I think. And then he was just like, is there anything you wanted to tell me? So I ended up telling him, he was like, I'm not ready for a relationship. And I was like, that's fine. Like, I only just told you because you kind of got it out of me. But he was like, do you feel better? And I was like, this is going to be awkward. And then he was like, why is that awkward? And I'm like, I don't know, it's just awkward. Olivia, why did he say, do you feel better now? I don't know. That's kind of a red flag to me. <laughs> I mean, a bunch of this is, Olivia. Yeah. And then a couple of weeks later, we had been hanging out every day for a while. And then he kind of was like, do you want to do Friends with Benefits? And I was like, I'll think about it. And then I agree to it. So the thing that got me thinking is right after we do the deed, he would talk about like wanting a family. He would talk about like how good of a boyfriend he'd be. Jordan, what happens in that moment after? (laughs) (laughs) It's a vulnerable moment. It's surprising he goes to that place there. I'm guessing you're saying he talks about these things, but he's not including you in the conversation. You're back to a pal. Is that what I'm hearing? I'm not sure because he would always talk about how many kids he wants and stuff like that and I don't know, plan his life after. And then he would be like, I want to be like Jim and Pam. Like that's what he wants his love story to be like. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what is happening? So if he's not ready for a relationship, why the heck is he bringing all this up right after So I confronted him. I was like, what is this? And also, because I was on the pill, we made the decision not to use protection. But if he's life planning and stuff like that, and he doesn't want to use protection, what is happening? And he was like, oh, we can use protection. That's fine. But he's like, no, I'm still not ready to date and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay. Now, from then, we were hanging out every day. We talk every day. We called every day. He would visit me at work. We were inseparable. So before the pregnancy talk, he was behaving like a boyfriend. Yeah, we'd hang out all the time. So then post-pregnancy talk, he had that shift, right? And he has now distanced himself. So basically, he put it on me that I still had feelings for him. He's accusing you of breaking the friends with benefits clause by falling for him. Yeah, even though I told him at the start that I had a crush on him. And then he was just like, we can stop if your feelings are too much. And then what happened was he kind of ignored me without ignoring me for three weeks. We would hang out with the same friendship group, but he would barely talk to me and stuff like that. Oh, I don't like this at all. And then I confronted him. I was like, why are you ignoring me? What's happening? And he was Uh... like, oh, I thought it'd be best for you because of your feelings. And I was just like, why didn't you let me know? Because I felt like over those three weeks, I kind of went through heartbreak without heartbreak. Yeah. And three weeks later, because I told him I didn't have any feelings anymore because he had done all these things. And he was just like, well, if you don't have feelings, would you be ready to start friends with benefits again? Olivia, you are getting beat up. (laughs) This is awful. I imagine you feel sad. I don't know. My goal is your happiness. Yeah. If he is not fulfilling that and if he is taxing you and weighing you down because he's not changing. Yeah. I hate it that he did not respect you in public, Mm -hmm. that he wasn't gentle with you, especially because I'm sure all your friends know 
Yeah. And that's hard too. Half of my friends are like, I don't like this guy. And half of them are like, oh, we love this guy. Even now, some people think that we're still a thing because I've chosen to just stay friends with him. But I think I shouldn't have done that. It's okay. We're not going to look back. Yeah. But he's not going to give you a relationship. Yeah. And I don't expect after this call that you will cut everything off. You'll probably sleep with him a couple more times because that's just human nature. Yeah. Like the slow death of a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the name of a real, real spicy novella. <laughs> the slow death of a bad thing. <laughs> The good news is, though, Olivia, you know how a pearl is grown in an oyster with a little grain of sand? I like to think of the heart as a little bit like that. Yeah. You've gone through some of this devastation of him hurting your feelings. Mm -hmm. I want your goal to be not having Tom occupy your brain. Yeah, that's what I'm trying. I don't want him a part of your life, Olivia, but I feel like that's a lot to ask right now. Yeah. I want you to have a partner who builds you up, who makes you feel awesome, who makes you feel funny, who makes you feel heard. How do we get that for you? Well, I think I need to not get new friends, but expand my friendship. Yes, like this. And because we used to work together because he moved to a different work, I think he misses the work so much he always still visits. So what if he calls you in like three days after you're kind of waiting for a text Mm -hmm. and he's like, want to come over, you want to hang out? What do you do? His actually telltale sign is, do you want to go to the gym? Because we usually go to the gym before... A (laughs) pre-workout. Yeah. Usually depends on work, but not going to lie. Four out of five times, I'd probably say yes. Okay. And that's okay. But I want you to continue to gauge like how miserable you feel. Because if you don't, that's a different story. So I want you to keep track of that. I want you to keep your expectations incredibly low Mm -hmm. for Tom. I definitely have. (laughs) I want you to be able to distract yourself by, like you said, going and meeting new people. What's so funny, first of all, that he goes to, I just want a Jim and Pam relationship. Right. With the assumption that he deserves a Pam. And I'm like, Tom, you got to put in the work to be Jim. Yeah. You're not doing Jim work right now. Yeah. You got to put in effort. And what exactly does that mean? That was a relationship where there was a ton of flirtation mm-hmm. for like five years. And then they realize they love each other. Is that the message that Tom is trying to send to you? Like, hey, let's like flirt and have sex and then we'll get married. Is he just dangling this stuff? I just remember him saying that. And I think the thing for him, oh, I like someone, but now's not the time because they don't like me or something like that. And then eventually go back to them or I don't know. Olivia, you have to protect yourself here a little bit. His everyday move you are analyzing and chewing over and he is occupying too much. We got to like reduce this. And it's usually just time and sadly enough pain. I want you to not have to go through that. Yeah. Well, you've already been through some of it. You'll probably go through more. Yeah. If you can avoid gossip, Mm -hmm. if your friends want to tell you something that they saw Tom with a thing or whatever, Mm -hmm. I want you to have the strength eventually to say like, you guys, I so want to gossip about this. I just can't do it right now because I'll end up thinking about it like for the next 73 hours. 
it'll just take a little time and you'll have to work on these things, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's so weird that he said, do you feel better? Yeah, that's thirst. That's a guy who hasn't had reciprocation on feelings for a long time. And he hears a rumor that somebody likes him and he just needs somebody to say that to his face. And so he chases you down for it. It's really, really juvenile. Yeah. And rude. Yeah, he does that to a lot of people when he's trying to help them get their feelings out. Oh, gross. (laughs) Yeah. I hate him. (laughs) He's just helping them get their feelings out on a... Tom be Tom. Oh, gross. (laughs) He's established the rules so he can use them in his defense. Yeah. So you're not going to get anywhere with that big conversation. Yeah. The only thing you can do is protect your heart. Yeah. Love the idea of you finding new friends Mm -hmm. because the goal is kind of time and distraction. Yeah. Look in all kinds of places. Mm -hmm. Olivia, it sounds like you're a caring person who wants and deserves a worthwhile partner. You know what the good thing of all this? I think Tom is telling you exactly who he is. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you want that offer to evolve. And it seems pretty clear he's had a hundred chances to articulate an evolution and he doesn't. And so he's written the rules. But I think now if you understand that that's what the game is, you choose to play if you're getting something out of it. But knowing that that's what that game is, there's probably a better game to play when you want to play that. And Olivia, one of the gifts of age is choosing curiosity. It's kind of, I guess, looking at like social media or something that satisfies a temporary itch, but it leaves you feeling, I don't know, sometimes ignorance literally is bliss. (laughs) Yeah. Whoa, I brought her home. (laughs) And it was poignant, right? That was very good. That was very good. Yes. It's a long wind up to ignorance, but I appreciate the trip. (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely learned from this and I'm ready to move on. That's probably why I wanted to get that extra little bit of non-biased advice. Olivia, I am thinking about you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the advice from you and Jordan. Thank you, Olivia. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Jordan, I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us. Of course. This was great. I think you led some people to the light. I'm impressed. Oh, thanks. Lately, I've found myself being a little more direct than I ever have been. Yeah, I was surprised by your directness in a good way. I feel like my instinct more often than not is support, go with your instincts, go with your gut, and what have you. But I do think oftentimes sending people down a path where you might be able to see some of the signs that maybe they aren't seeing. I think the more direct you can be, and I think also, I was thinking about this with this podcast, they've taken the time to write you and talk to you about things that they very much care about and are thinking about. Mm -hmm. They don't need you to bullshit about what they want to do. They want you to let them know how you see it. And I think that is good advice. They can choose to do what they want with it, but you don't have time to waste. Of course, it's tough to say to somebody, I think that you like him more than they like you. Mm -hmm. But good news, I guess, is that I would say like 95% of the time, our callers already know, you know, they have a sense in their gut. Jordan, thank you again, truly. Thanks so much for all this time. Anna, thank you for having me. 